We're in a series right now called Find Your Life, and it's all built around a statement that Jesus made in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, where Jesus said, follow me. That's in verse 24, and at the end of verse 25, he makes a promise that we will find our life. And we've been challenged to discover the life that we were destined to live. I think we all have a sense that God has a great life for us, but in yet many of our situations, we're kind of winging it. We're making it up as we go. We really haven't discovered it. So what we're working on is this premise where Jesus said to follow him and that he will lead us to the life that we were destined to live. Uh, I was in Houston all last week. I spoke five days there, and, and although... Uh, that's a familiar city to me. I was there. My first church was in Houston when I graduated from college. A lot has changed in 35 years. It's a scary place to drive. I'm scared to drive in Houston if I know where I'm going. But what really scared me was the pastor said to me one night, just follow me. And he, st- he took off. I didn't have a map. I didn't know the address. I, he just said, follow me. And I knew what that meant. He wanted me to go where he went, speed up where he sped up, slow down where he slowed down, turn where he turned, stop where he stopped, go where he went. And so following him just simply meant responding to what he was doing. And so when Jesus says for us to follow him, that is what he's talking about. He is basically saying, imitate me. Do what you see me do. And in that process, Christ is promising us that we will find the life that we were destined to live. Now, on a practical basis, um, just to tell you what this series is all about, is I've looked at, those, I've looked at the life and teachings of Jesus. And I've, I've tried to find the six areas where Jesus talked about and basically lived his life most. And we've already covered three of those. In, in the first week, we talked about following Jesus to authenticity because he talked about the importance of being real. In week two, we talked about another subject that Jesus constantly referred to, which was money. Jesus wants us to make sure that we're in control of our money and not our money in control of us. And then when we use money, we do it with an eternal perspective in mind. Last week, Jonathan Mark talked to you about the importance of humility, how that Jesus is always reminding us to put others ahead of ourselves. Not only did he teach that, he certainly lived it. But today we're going to follow Jesus to an important place that he talked about constantly, and that's to a place called forgiveness. Throughout Jesus' teaching, over and over, he emphasized forgiveness. And could I say this? Jesus probably talked most frankly about this subject, perhaps more than any other. Let me just give you a snippet. Let me give you just a a sampling of some of the statements that Jesus made about forgiveness that will help us understand its importance. In Mark 11, 25, Jesus said, when you're praying, first forgive. So in other words, before you ask for anything, even before you thank God, Jesus said, when you're praying, first thing you need to do, forgive. Forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against. Anyone? Wow. So that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. In Matthew 6, 14, Jesus tightens it a little bit. He said, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. I don't know about you. There are a few places in the scriptures that sort of give me a chill when I read it. That's, on, that's right at the top. That last line, your Father will not forgive your sins. Maybe you can afford that. I can't. I can't afford that for 10 minutes. Pretty serious stuff. And then Jesus said, if your brother sins, and I got and this is just me talking. It's probably my ADD talking. I would love to have read this verse if Jesus had put, if your husband sins or if your wife sins. But maybe the Lord is just throwing us a slow pitch and says, if your brother sins. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And this is the reason why I thought about that. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. But the verse that we know most well, is the verse from the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. 
And by the way, most translations are good. You know, of course, the, the Bible wasn't written in English. The Old Testament's written in Hebrew. New Testament's written mostly in Greek, some Aramaic. So most of the modern translations we have today are really good. NIV, NASV, NLT, NKJV. Most of them are good translations. NA, you know. But the Amplified, if you ever get a chance to get your hand on the Amplified, it's kind of a, it's kind of a good translation to have as a source. And I'll tell you why. Some of the words in the Bible can't really be brought over completely into English. And the Amplified will give us the full meaning of a word, even if it takes several words to do it. So this verse is so important, I want to read it to you out of the Amplified. Jesus said, forgive us our debts, this is in the Lord's Prayer, as we have forgiven. By the way, that is the correct translation. Many of us grew up praying, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us, as if there is kind of a corresponding scale. That's a bad translation. The correct translation says, forgive us our sins as we have already forgiven those. In other words, Jesus' point is, if we don't forgive the people who sin against us, God won't forgive us. What's the point of asking? So in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven. We've left, we've remitted, we've let go of the debts and have given up resentment against our debtors. Now, I'm just going to be real with you. That sounds impossible to me. For me to like just say, whoever hurts me, I'm prepared to forgive. Because here's the thing. See, I can never hold a grudge against somebody for over 24, day, 24 hours because I need to pray every day. So Jesus is saying to forgive. Now, it sounds impossible to me. Let me go a step further. It sounds irresponsible to me. I mean, the people who have hurt me, to just let them go before they say they're sorry, before they deal with it, it sounds irresponsible. Might be if Jesus hadn't said that little deal about following him. Because in following Jesus, there's no doubt about it. I mean, he forgives. We sang, didn't that what we sang about four times today? Didn't we sing four songs about how that God has forgiven us? It's very obvious if we follow Jesus, we're going to follow him to forgiveness. But he said something earlier, though, that should really resonate with us. He said if we follow him, we will find our life. So here's the point. This is where we're going to have to... Work with me for a few moments. Somehow, forgiveness is going to have to help me find life. What does forgiving people have to do with me finding my ultimate destiny? Maybe everything. Let's talk about God for a moment, because we said we're going to have to follow him. It's true that God forgave. Take, look at the first time God ever forgave anybody for anything. Our first parents, Adam and Eve. No, no, some people don't believe in Adam and Eve. They believe they're fictitious characters. Do find it interesting. Even science tells us that we all go back to a common male ancestor and a common female ancestor. Uh, I think it's, what is the MRCA most recent common ancestor? Even science, we call them chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve. Science doesn't say they exist at the same time, but I'll just go, I'll, for me, I'll just take the Bible. Sounds, re sounds reasonable to me that we all came from the same parents. Um, but we know God put them in a perfect environment and they sinned. Now, let me ask you this. Could God have chosen not to forgive them? Sure, he's a just God. But what would have happened? What if when our first parents sinned, and we're all in them genetically, what if when our first parents sinned, God said, mm -mm, I'm sorry, I told you, you screwed up, we're finished here. Well, that's what would have happened. We would have been finished here. Life would have stopped. God's plan would have stopped. God wanted to make a world. He wanted lots of children. You and I are in that, we're in, we're in that plan. If God says to Adam and Eve, I don't forgive you, it's shut down right there. But what happened when he forgave? 
he made a way to go on. Guys, I've had this happen to me a couple times. For some reason, it always happened in Mississippi. I don't know. Back when we used to drive to Florida, you know, a long way from home and a long way from our destination. A couple times we were driving in Mississippi at night. I took the wrong turn. I, I got off the highway, you know, the main highway, and then I got on a smaller highway. I thought I was on the right road, but the next thing I know, I'm driving down a city street, then I make a turn on a gravel road, and I'm in a dead end. And that is exactly what happens to us when we fail to forgive somebody. What does forgiveness have to do with finding our life? Simply this. When we don't forgive, life shuts down. When we forgive, we make a life, way for life to go on. And that's the reason why I've chosen the title, I'll be okay now, or I'm okay now. I love sports, and I've told you this before. I, I never was a great athlete. I was always the kind of athlete, though, that you had to kill in order to beat. So as a result, I got hurt no matter what I played. I tore this ACL out of the knee. I broke this elbow playing football. Um, I mean, I just got injured every way you can get injured. So in, in, my, in my adult years, I decided to take up golf because it looked like a more genteel sport. <laughs> I remember one day, I was on 10th hole over at Braeburn. You know, I was getting and I actually teed off my ball, went over to the woods. If you ever played Braeburn, I was on the right side there in the woods. And, and I guess here was the tee box, didn't see anybody you know, down, down the fairway, and he just teed off, and he hit a real hot drive right off. I mean, it just didn't probably go higher than, than head level. I mean, he just came off hot, caught me in the back of the head. The next thing I remember was tomorrow. So, see, I can't even take up golf without getting hurt. <laughs> it's like I told you, if I took up chess, i get carpal tunnel. I mean, it's just how it is with me. But I know what it's like to lie on the basketball floor or lie on the field and you know it's like I don't know if I can get up but there's always that moment where it's like I'll be okay now. And to me that's what forgiveness does. When we forgive it's as if we're saying I've been hurt but I'm going to be okay now. But it still could be that somebody is saying Mark listen something you know and, and I've, been, I've been teaching on forgiveness now for a lot of years and here's what I've discovered. Usually what happens to me in a service like this is that somebody's going to find me in the concourse and they're going to tell me a story about something that's been done so egregious to them that surely I will say, well, that's an exception. You don't have to forgive that. A couple of problems with that. The first problem, my opinion, is totally irrelevant. And secondly, Jesus said forgive. So, but if somebody's saying I can't forgive here, maybe before we do that, maybe we need to hear what Jesus has to teach about forgiveness because I think this will put it in context for many of us, if not all of us. There's a story about a conversation between Peter and Jesus. Maybe the other disciples were there. Maybe a big crowd was there. I don't know. But Peter came up to Jesus. I'm guessing Jesus had been talking about forgiveness. And so Peter asked Jesus, and this is in Matthew 18, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Well, the rabbis in Peter's day taught that you forgave somebody three times, three strikes and you're out. But, you know, Peter went to Jesus and he said, Lord, how many times should I forgive somebody? Seven? I mean, Peter's saying seven is the number of perfection, so surely that's the number of completion, or, or that's the number I have to forgive. You know what I find interesting about this? You know, because we could be patting Peter on the back and say, wow, that's great, Peter. You went four more times than the rabbis. But Peter didn't actually say he forgave somebody seven times. He's just asking Jesus a theological question. Jesus' answer must have blown his mind because he said, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or some of you have a translation that says 70 times seven. A little fuzzy. 
But whether you forgive somebody 77 times in a day or 490 times in a day, it really, you've, long, you've long stopped counting. Forgiveness is your SOP. Forgiveness is your MO. But we should ask the question, I mean, we should think about this. When Peter said, how many times should I forgive? He wasn't asking, Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive? What Peter is asking is, when can I stop forgiving? When, when can I bust them in the mouth? That's Peter's question. So even though Jesus tells him 77, he knows Peter still doesn't get it. So Jesus tells him a story. And if there's any story in the Bible that gets in my chili, this one does. And so let me read it to you now, and then we'll talk about it. Okay, we're going to read for a few minutes. This is in Matthew 18. Kingdom of heaven is like a king, Jesus said, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay back the debt. When the other servants, co-workers, saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And when they went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Now, why did Jesus tell this story to Peter? And why does it get in my, why does it get in my grill so much? Well, let's, let's walk through the dynamics of the story. There's a king. He's wanting to balance his books. Wish our politicians did that. <laughs> and he's, he's, in his balancing his books, he discovers that he has, a, he has a government worker or an employee who owes him money. You ready for this? You're holding on to something solid? This is how much the man owes by Wednesday's gold price close. He owes $16 billion, with a B. $16,448,000,000. Like I said, I just calculated this, Wednesday's gold, gold price. 60, how in the world does a man who's making an ordinary wage wind up, I don't, know how much you, how, I don't know how much you have on your MasterCard or Visa or your mortgage. I'm guessing you don't owe 16. Listen, if you had $16 billion, you'd be on a list of America's richest people, the world's richest people. How does a guy get to owing $16 billion? He must have broken something real expensive. Is all I can figure out. <laughs> but in those days, there were no bankruptcy laws. And so what, what could happen is a creditor could demand that the person who owed him money, all of his assets be liquidated to, to meet the debt. And if the assets weren't, weren't enough, then the debtor could be sold into slavery. And that could be put up against the debt. And if that still wasn't enough, he could sell his wife. And if that still wasn't enough, he could sell his kids to be slaves. And that was what was about to happen here. And this poor guy who owed $16 billion, $448 million, he, he bowed before the king and he said, please give me time and I promise I will, I will get it all paid. Well, that was an irrational approach. First of all, it means he didn't understand the scope of his debt. He didn't understand how much trouble he was in. Because here's the thing. All of us who understand interest, 
time was not on his side. Every day he lived, he was going to be more in debt. So it was ridiculous for him to say, give me time. Time was not his friend. But in Jesus' story, the king took pity upon him, and he forgave him of everything. And the king said, you don't owe me anything. You walked in owing $16 billion, and now you don't owe a penny. I'd love to have gotten in his mind to figure out what it was like or to find out what it was like to walk down the steps being something that a lot of us will never be, debt-free. Here's the thing. This is not a story about a king and a servant. The reason why Jesus told Peter this story, it's a story about God and about you and me. See that unpayable debt? That's what we owe God. And just as you and I have a hard time wrapping our mind around $16,448,000,000 for a guy who earns an ordinary salary, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around just how much we owe God. See, we don't even know how much we owe God. We don't even remember all our sins. And beyond that, our sense of justice is so far below God's pure sense of justice. There were times when we sinned against God and we didn't know about it. But what happens when we realize that we're a sinner? We come to God, and this is what religion is built around. We come to God and we say, oh, God, please give me time and I'll get right. I'll, 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 I'll turn the corner. I'll do better. But what we don't realize is time is not on our side. Because every day we live, we just wind up owing God more and more and more. I don't know about you, but so many times I've told, told God I'd do better, and I just keep screwing up, keep screwing up, keep screwing up. See, the longer I live, the more trouble I'm in. And so I come to God, and what does God do? God just has pity, and he says, Mark, it's going to wipe the slate clean. You don't owe me anything. You came to me with this huge sin debt that you can never pay. And the longer you live, the worse it's going to be. But you know what? I'm going to put my son Jesus on a cross. The blood that flows out of his body is going to pay for everything you've ever done wrong. And you're just free. You can walk out of here and you don't owe me anything. And you'll never owe me anything. And yet, when the servant got forgiven of $16,448,000,000, he went out and found a guy who owed him $50, a co-worker. And he said, pay me what you owe me. And the guy said, hey, give me, give me the payday. And the guy said, no, I'm not going to give you the payday. You owe me $50. He had him thrown into jail. And when the king heard what had been done, well, let's read it again. The king called the master in, the servant in, rather, and he said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I don't know what that means to be turned over to the torturers. I just don't want to be there. But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm having a sense that most of us are saying, Mark, I do pretty well with that most of the time. I forgive nearly everybody, but this one thing that was done to me is so egregious, it would be irresponsible if I forgave this person. Well, I tell you what, some of us are going to get some relief in the next few moments because what I want to do as I close out this message, I want to show you that four things that forgiveness is not and three things that forgiveness is. And the reason why I want us to go through this exercise is that many of us have beliefs that are not necessarily biblical. It's a little bit of Bible with a little bit of religion and a little bit of culture and a little bit of what we've been told. And in the process, some of us have come to believe things about forgiveness that God is not asking for. So I want to take just a few quick moments to give you four things that forgiveness is not. Okay? Because some of us are going to breathe, breathe when we hear this. First of all, forgiveness is not denial. 
Forgiveness isn't just pretending it didn't happen. I think there's some people that have the idea that if, if I really forgive people the way God wants me to forgive, I'm just going to pretend it never happened. But it isn't denial. If you hadn't suffered a harm, then you wouldn't have anything to forgive. So it's not denial. Number two, forgiveness is not being a doormat and letting people walk on you. I mean, it is true that the Lord tells us to be meek. In Matthew 5, 5, the Bible says, blessed are the meek. But meek doesn't mean doormats. Meekness is strength under control. Dr. Barnes, who's a great Bible scholar and linguist, he said, meekness is the reception of injuries with the, with the belief that God will vindicate us. It's not being a doormat. But here is the third one that is going to help a lot of you right now, especially if you have been harmed by somebody who is dangerous. And you're saying, Mark, if I were to forgive this person, I might make people vulnerable. I might become vulnerable again. Are you ready for this? Forgiveness is not restoration to a place of trust. A lot of people think that forgiveness and restoration of trust are the same thing, but they are not. This is, this, I don't have time to develop this, but I'm, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a great example of this. You know that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and that started a series of 13 years of hard things that happened to Joseph. And after that, he begins to run Egypt. Now, you will remember that his brothers, if you've read the story, if you haven't, it's toward the end of Genesis. You will remember that his brothers have to come to Egypt in order to get grain to keep from starving to death. The only thing is, when they get there and they meet the guy running, Israel, running Egypt, it's their brother Joseph. But he doesn't look like Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. He knows it's them, but they don't know it's Joseph. Because at this point, Joseph... You know, he's dressing like an Egyptian, you know. He's like, you know, got bling on like an Egyptian. He's walking like an Egyptian. And so <laughs> they don't know it's Joseph. And if you've ever read that, and you look at all those sort of weird gymnastics that Joseph goes through, he's trying to figure out if his brothers have changed. Now, here's what I believe. I believe Joseph forgave his brothers 13 years before when he was at Potiphar's house. But before he could let them come to Egypt, he had to find out if they had truly changed. And so I'm just telling you, Forgiveness does not mean putting yourself in harm's way. You may have been harmed by a predator. And you're saying, Mark, if I put that person back into our home, my children will be at risk. By no means should you ever do that. You say, Mark, I could be put at risk. No, forgiveness is not restoration to trust. Those are two different things. And number four, forgiveness is never to be demanded. Uh, there are people, and I've met a lot of them, who are sort of... Uh, I don't know what to call it. They're just sort of Bible-thumping predators. You know, it's like, and I, I hear these people, it's like, God says you have to forgive me. I wreak all this havoc in your life, but the Bible says you have to forgive me. I was on stage about three or four months ago, and I was talking about this, and I said something before I thought, and I just shot from the hip, and I said, if you ever deal with somebody who says, God says you have to forgive me, I said, but this is before I thought, I said, you're dealing with a narcissist at best and a psychopath at worst. I didn't have time to think about it. Now that I've had a few minutes to think about it, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I've just had a few more illustrations of that in people I run into. Listen, if you ever run into somebody who says, God says you have to forgive me, you really are. I'm thought about it now. You're dealing with a narcissist at best and a psychopath at worst and maybe a psychopath in the making. So, real quickly, forgiveness is not denial. Forgiveness is not being a doormat. Forgiveness is not necessarily restoration to trust. And forgiveness is never to be demanded. What is forgiveness? 
I'll close the talk with this. There are three metaphors as I study the Bible that help me understand what forgiveness is. And I hope they help you. We saw the first one. Jesus coached us up on this first one. See, here's the thing. When somebody harms us, as people will do, we have a sense of debt. They have harmed us. They owe us. I mean, this is what makes civil court work. There's some harm, and so people seek redress in a court of law. So consequently, that's what happens to us. If if you sin against me, I've got your invoice right here. You hurt me, you owe me. Now, here's the problem with unforgiveness. I keep this invoice. And you know what? If I see you coming, I mean, you may not see it, but I got this invoice. And every time you talk to me, I'm reading the invoice. I'm waiting for you to pay me. Now, here's the thing. If you're around somebody a whole lot like being married to them or kids or parents like that, after a while, you get a whole stack of invoices. They just keep growing. Some of you can't, some of you are sleeping on a, you're sleeping on a whole stack of invoices. Oh, we could go there and talk about that for a little while, but we won't. Let me tell you what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is just tearing up the invoice and saying, you don't know me anymore. Now, do they owe God? Well, that's between them and God. You don't know me anymore. Hey, I'm free. I can see you and I don't have to think about the invoice. I, I knew I had this sermon on forgiveness. And Morales and I, we, we go so far back, you know, we were dating in high school. We got married my senior year in college. And, and so, gosh, that's been a lot of years ago. And I was saying about, the, and I, I know you have a hard time believing this, but I'm not always the easiest person in the world to live with. Because I'm like constant energy. And sometimes I do things and say things without thinking them through real carefully. And Morales has been so patient with me through the years. And so I, I just said to her the other day, I said, you know, babe, I appreciate all the many times you've forgiven me. She said, I don't remember you doing anything wrong. You know why? She just tore up the invoice. Tore up the invoice. Here's the second thing that forgiveness means. Mike, come up and help me on this. I used to do a lot of counseling. I talked to a lot of husbands and wives. And I've discovered that a lot of people, they say, well, I can't forgive because here's the thing. I can't let this person go. I got them in the cuffs. Oh, that's the only problem with for handcuffs. See, because if you saw Mike and me up on stage right now, you don't know who's cuffed to who, do you? Because see, everywhere I go, he goes. Everywhere he goes, I go. And it's like, well, I've got him in the cuffs, but he's got me in the cuffs, which is really making me kind of nervous right now. <laughs> yeah, I know people that they're married to a great person, but they still got their first husband in the cuffs. They still have their first wife in the cuffs. Some, some of us have dead people in the cuffs. You know what? Who wants to live handcuffed? You say, well, I'm, I don't want this person to go free, but do you want to go free? You know, Michael, could I get you to take those off, please? <laughs> Thanks, bro. Oh. Mike's told me several times how to do that. Hey, give it up for Mikey. Mike Amy. Forgiveness is just letting people go. Because who's, here's the thing. You want to be free. Hey, you need to find your life. Are you going to find your life handcuffed to somebody who owes you something? And the third metaphor that I think about, I brought something very important from the Hoover household. I brought a trash bag. <laughs> because isn't it true that not everything that comes in your house should stay in your house? Things go bad. You ever, you ever, you ever watch one of those shows on television about a pack rat, somebody who keeps everything? 
They keep every card. They keep every, they keep junk mail. What's the problem with an extreme pack rat? I mean, they can live in a 5,000 square feet home with three levels, and before long, they're living in a little tiny room because what happens is if you don't throw out the trash, it begins to encroach on your living space. And I know homes where people have kept everything that has ever happened. And, man, they can detail it. Jonathan told me the other day, I've used this for the years, and he said one of his favorite illustrations is one that I've used where I'm saying, you know, a lot of people, they have all the things that have been done to them. It's like a box of broken glass, and they take out the box, and they go through the broken glass, and every time they do, it cuts them up again. Forgiveness is not denial. It's not being a doormat. Forgiveness is not necessarily restoration to trust, and forgiveness is never anything to be demanded. Forgiveness is tearing up the invoice and saying, you don't owe me anymore. It doesn't mean they won't have to deal with God. But you don't owe me anymore. And I've let you out of the cuffs because I want to be free. And I'm taking out the trash because I don't want to live with garbage. My life is too short. I had the hardest time trying to figure out how to close this message. And it's not because I didn't have enough to say. I had too much to say. I wish I now had about 10 hours to close this message. Because... In 38 years of pastoring and in traveling the country and part of the world and meeting people in places where I've spoken, I've seen so many beautiful stories of forgiveness. I mean, I'm not going to use this one, but I thought about years ago I was in a church speaking, and there was a couple in that church. They had two little boys. And the wife, I don't know, something just kind of went haywire in her thinking, and she wound up having an affair with a guy, and then she wound up having another affair, and she was in a third affair, I think, if I remember right. And she had gone out one night, left her husband and boys at home, and was in an automobile accident, was killed. And the day of the funeral came. Father had gotten two boys ready to go to the funeral. And as the father was getting ready, he saw a little bowl on the vanity where the woman had taken off her wedding rings the night before she went out with her lover. And he slipped them in his pocket and he went to the service. Everybody came by to view the corpse and then the time came and it was just the man and his two boys and he held each one up so they could say goodbye to their mom and, and he passed them off to family and then the moment came when it was just the man and his wife's body and the pastor and funeral directors. And the man reached out and took the wedding ring and picked up his wife's left hand and slipped the ring back on to her finger. I think about that. That story stays with me. But the story I remember the most, and I'm sure I've shared it with you before, but I'll never forget. I was speaking in Toronto, Canada in 1996, in November of that year. They, they're celebrating Independence Day up there. I'll tell you this before I, before I go any further. If you're into photography, especially if you're into photography of the 20th century, there's always going to be a list of like top 10 photographs of the 20th century or top 50. Almost every one of those lists is going to contain a picture of a little naked girl running in Vietnam because napalm has just been dropped in her village and she is actually a burning alive with napalm. A little naked 10-year-old girl running through the streets of a city. We all know the photograph as the girl in the picture. That picture probably more than anything else turned the United States against the war in Vietnam. It was so powerful that Richard Nixon wondered about the authenticity of it. Anyway, I'm preaching in Canada. And uh, 
There's an auditorium that seat about 1,000 people, and probably a little shy of that was the crowd that was there. I'll tell you that for a reason. There was an Asian lady in that church that, I mean, her smile just lit up the world. I mean, you could, she, she would smile the entire time I was preaching. I got to where I just looked at her because she just smiled. It was just huge. So when I would get through speaking, and, and this still happens sometimes, there would be a line of people waiting to talk to me, and they would want to just say hello to me or tell me something about the message or some of them want me to sign their Bibles or whatever. But there's this line of people that would always queue up. But somehow she, this Asian lady always managed to, to position herself at the end of the line. So I, I would always come, and, and at the end, she would have something to tell me, and she was very gracious and encouraging. And so she did that the first night. She did the second night. She was still there at the end of the line. And so I went to the pastor, and I said, um, who's the beautiful Asian lady with the huge smile? And he said, you don't know who she is? I said, no, I don't know who she is. He said, that's Kim Fuke, you know, the girl in the picture. I thought, my word, the girl in the picture. And she was. Just a little bit of the rest of her story. If you ever, many of you have seen that picture, especially if you're into history. If you look at some of the other children there, they died pretty quickly. And they thought Kim was going to die. But one surgeon decided, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to try to save her life. And that was the beginning of 14 months of hospital stay and 17 surgeries that were done to save Kim's life. One night... After I found that out, she, she was wearing a sleeveless dress with a jacket, and she slipped off her jacket and showed me her shoulder. I've got to tell you, I've never seen human skin look like that. See, after Kim got well, the, the Soviets used her for propaganda. They took her all over the world to show her, show her off as, the, as an example of the warmongering militaristic Americans. So she not only was victimized by the napalm, she was victim, victimized by the Soviets. But anyway, while she was being used by the Soviets, she began to read some books. And one of the books that she happened to come upon was the Bible. And as she read the Bible, she accepted Christ as her Lord and Savior. And by this time, she is married. And as the Soviets are flying her around the world, she just walks off the plane. I think it was in Nova Scotia. And went to Canada and asked for asylum. And so that's how I wound up meeting Kim Fuke in 1996 in Toronto, Canada. But anyway, it was um, late in the meeting. I was there, I think, Wednesday through Sunday. And if I remember right, I'm starting to get a little fuzzy. It was, it was sometime late in the week. Kim came to me and she said, and she had a little bit of an accent. She said, Pastor, I won't be able to be here tomorrow night. And I said, I'm sorry. She said, I want to ask you if you will pray for me. Would you have a prayer with me? She said, the Americans have invited me to the Vietnam Memorial for Veterans Day to give a talk. And she said, would you pray for me that I can tell the American servicemen I forgive them because Christ has forgiven me? And we had a prayer. And the next day, Kim went to the Vietnam Wall and made a speech. And that speech has become legendary. And it opened up a whole new life for her. Would you let me read part of Kim's speech to you? And so this is the entirety. This is what Kim's said the day after we prayed together in Canada. Dear friends, I'm happy to be with you today. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about and meet with you on this Veterans Day. As you know, I am the little girl who was running to escape from the napalm fire. I do not want to talk about the war because I cannot change history. I've suffered a lot from the pain, both physical and emotional pain. 
Sometimes I thought I could not live, but God saved me and gave me faith and hope. Even if I could talk face to face with the pilot who dropped the bombs, I would tell them we cannot change history, but we should try to do good things for the present and for the future to promote peace. I did not think that I could marry nor have any children because of my burns, but now I have a happy, I have a, I have a wonderful husband and a lovely son and a happy family. Dear friends, I just dream one day people all over the world can live in real peace, no fighting and no hostility. We should work together to build peace and happiness for people in all nations. Thank you so much for letting me be part of this important day. When Kim gave that speech, all of a sudden it caught the attention of the world. You can find this everywhere on the internet. But people began to ask her to come speak. And, and it's amazing. She's now an ambassador for UNESCO. <laughs> I mean, I, she's a sought-after speaker. This morning, I, I, I've already brought this message twice. This morning, I just thought, well, I'm going to just look at Kim's Wikipedia page. And on NPR in 2008, I found this quote from Kim that I didn't have for the service, but I want to give it to you now. She said, forgiveness made me free from hatred. I still have many scars on my body and severe pain most days, but my heart is cleansed, napalm." is very powerful but faith forgiveness and love are much more powerful see that's the problem with unforgiveness it shuts life down forgiveness makes a way to go on i'm out of time right now but could i ask you a question have you received god's forgiveness because that's the thing. Until we receive God's forgiveness, I'm not sure, like, like Kim said, I'm not sure we have the capacity to forgive. You know what? The things that people have done to hurt you, they're powerful, but God's love is more powerful. And if you're willing, you could come to God by faith. I've already talked to you about Jesus being here today. If you're willing to reach out to Jesus, you could experience his forgiveness. You could be forgiven from that unpayable debt so that you will have peace to forgive those who have hurt you. If you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I'm not sure I'm square with God. I don't know where I stand with God. I don't even know how much I owe him. Well, I'd like for you to pray a prayer a lot more insightful than the one who was, that was prayed to the king in, you know, in Jesus' story. I want you to pray a prayer that reaches out to God, that reaches out for forgiveness. Would you just pray with me, please? And I'll, I'll, I'll pray it slowly so that you can repeat it. And, and the important thing is that you mean it, not, the, not that you use my words. Dear God, I know I owe you an unpayable debt. I don't even know how many sins I've committed. I don't know how much I owe you. But I believe Jesus died in my place to pay for my sins. And I ask you to forgive me of everything and make me your child. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you just prayed that prayer? You may say, Mark, I'm not sure what happened to me. That was so quick. I've got some resources that I want to give. G-I-B-E will not cost you anything. No strings attached. I've got a couple resources. It's a packet. It has a DVD and a book I wrote that takes you from the step, from the moment you pray, what happens next? Answers a lot of questions. Free. won't cost you anything. It's real simple to get it. There's a guest services out in the lobby, straight out in the middle, and a little one back by the coffee shop. Just bring your talk to his car back, and all you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they won't hassle you, stalk you, ask for your routing number, your address, what kind of car you drive, or anything like that. 
I just want to give that to you, okay? Thank you for being here. God willing, we'll go to a new level next week.